Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Coindesk TV. Happy Monday. You're watching The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jensen Assey and Will Foxley. We're going to race you through today's news because there's a lot of it. Let's do this thing. I'm tossing to myself. A little bit of breaking news. Binance is being sued by the CFTC over the willful evasion of U.S. laws. Pretty big bombshell dropped on Binance this morning. Bitcoin's price tanked precipitously, about $1,000 after the news broke. And this potentially has some ramifications. CFTC is alleging that Binance urged U.S. users to use a VPN to access Binance.com services when otherwise they should have been prevented from doing so, among other allegations. This, I guess, continues a trend of regulatory crackdown ramping up in these recent months. And certainly there's been a big target on Binance's back. So to see this action out of the CFTC, it's not necessarily unexpected, but is certainly a big action that has been taken by U.S. regulators. I got to toss this one straight to Jen. Jen, what do you think of this one? Well, it's so funny in this industry how we just get little puzzle pieces that start painting a picture for us as the days go on. As I was reading this, I was reflecting on the CNBC story we spoke about last week, where they said that according to a bunch of different chat rooms and messaging services, Binance employees were helping people do the same thing in China and a few other countries. I can imagine that the CFTC is probably going to cite some similar sources or similar information as we see this case unfold. And if Binance employees are, in fact, showing people how to subvert their KYC and AML restrictions. I don't think that that is going to go well for the largest exchange out there. I think that this is a really tight time for regulatory action. And it seems like every day we're getting another big regulatory storm. And so I think, you know, that CNBC article, we're going to see some of those details come out over the next weeks and months. Well, yeah, this is a pretty interesting piece this morning. So CFTC is going after Binance and, of course, CZ. There's a few different points within this complaint that we should definitely take a look at. And one of them is the fact that CZ has essentially been the headquarters for Binance. They bring that up. That's kind of been a longstanding joke within crypto that wherever Binance is or wherever CZ is, that's where Binance is located. And in the complaint, you see that they talk about Tokyo, they talk about Malta, 
talk about so many different jurisdictions. And Binance was doing that according to documents included within this complaint because they wanted to jump from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and not be liable to any jurisdiction's different laws. There's some other facts in here that are also pretty interesting talking about Binance funneling or facilitating is maybe a better word, the use of funds for terror groups like Hamas. And they talk about the cost of an AK-47. AK-47 is not that expensive. So like, why would they chop down on it? They said another part of this documentation that it's for business reasons that they're going to close two eyes to things that don't look good for regulators. And you know, I do have some thoughts about that. They're like a little bit more pro-Binance. But when you do see it on paper and you see terror groups linked to this, you see some other stuff that's not so tasteful with this document, you start to look at it and be like, ooh, this is not great for Binance. The other thing that's worth bringing up is the fact that they were trying to geo-restrict so many US users of Binance from using Binance itself. They started rolling that out in about 2019. I myself was actually kicked off Binance around that time. But it doesn't seem like everybody was able to be kicked off, including some VIP customers. And there seems to be like some shell games around those VIP customers that the CFTC is complaining about. Zach, can I throw this one back into your ball court? Any thoughts on Hamas stuff or Americans being able to use Binance or anything substantive in the CFTC case? Yeah, there's a lot here. And this is the playbook, I think, for US enforcement agencies to go after overseas firms, right? You talk about sort of expanding that regulatory perimeter such that the US can allege that all companies should be under US jurisdiction by way of the technologies that grant US citizens access to these platforms that aren't otherwise easily accessible to them, right? So I think this is that bombshell that we've been expecting for some time now, right? You would see dribs and drabs of updates being reported on this case through sources, mostly unnamed. And you see a lot of cries of FUD from the crypto faithful saying, oh, there's nothing new here. We all knew this is happening, blah, 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 blah. Well, this really is the one. This is the big shoe to drop. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, how Binance handles this, if they go public in their fight against these charges, the way Coinbase has had with its suit from the SEC. I don't know if CZ has a big leg to stand on to say, hey, we're fighting this thing. But I would imagine that that would probably be their tack here after you know being hit with this complaint. You know, complaints are always written in the most damning terms, right? They lay out the government's best possible case. They're compiled after months and months of research and are meant to tell a story and to paint a picture that Binance has been, again, willfully evading US laws and regulations. It's going to be interesting to see what Binance's story is and whether or not, you know, their quote unquote, you know, good faith efforts to block US users, whether they should be held to account that people have ultimately been using them through VPNs and other ways. And I think that's why sort of the details here about, you know, the chief compliance officer sort of alluding to the fact that they're encouraging people from the US to access the Binance.com platform is so front and center in the article and in the complaint itself. So that to me is, again, this playbook that we'll probably see for other offshore platforms falling into the regulatory purview of US authorities. And that's potentially something that's really a challenge for crypto firms going forward. There's a lot to be said for, again, this regulatory clampdown, crackdown, you name it, really going global, led by US regulators. Will? Yeah, one thing I do want to bring up here is maybe some like sympathy for Binance here, like going back to 2017, 2018, 2019, when they really started to build their company, right? It's very hard to build in the space. And oftentimes you want to go to the most liquid, well capitalized places. And for crypto, that's off the United States or Western Europe where you want to start like bootstrapping. And so that's why a lot of these companies do have some sort of presence in the US, even if they don't want to register with the CFTC or SEC. 
And being a crypto native, more person, I kind of have some sympathy with that. That being the case, though, there are laws in the US and you must abide by them. Otherwise, you can't operate here. And that's why the CFTC is going after them. This does make me ask some questions, though, however, about like who is being put within the US borders and who is outside the US borders. We saw that SEC case last week talking about how only one person was designated in this Tron TRX case having used Tron in the United States and now it was in the SEC's purview. Is that the case with the CFTC? It's hard to tell. It's also hard to tell like what is the timeline for all this, right? Did it happen three years ago? Now the CFTC is bringing it up or did it just happen recently? Now they're bringing it up. Hard to tell. All right. So global crypto regulation is getting tighter. Surprise, surprise. Under a revision of the European Union's Data Act, smart contracts will have to contain a kill switch The proposed legislation would require smart contracts to be able to interrupt or terminate their activity. Separately, the G7 is pushing for tougher crypto regulation with a focus on increasing business transparency and consumer protection. Zach, what do you got? This is such an interesting pairing because, you know, the G7 article really makes the case for why we should be using transparent DeFi systems. I'm sure there's a lot of DeFi builders out there saying, oh, you want business transparency? Let's do it all in DeFi. We can make this work. These are open, auditable ledgers that give you access to this information in real time. And then on the other hand, you have an update from the EU saying, oh, yeah, that like immutability thing that you guys like about smart contracts. Yeah, nah, we need to like be able to like hit the button and shut it all down you know, when we hit you with a legal complaint. So you have these two really interesting tensions potentially unfolding here as people look to make this industry fit within the regulatory box that is familiar to these existing parties. So I think the G7 one stood out to me as maybe more interesting, right? DeFi kind of solves some of the stuff that is being mentioned here, even if maybe they're not fully aware of it. And yet on the other hand, the EU, which has been probably one of the more forward-thinking regulatory bodies when they're thinking about how to bring crypto into a regulated world, they're also saying, hey, we need to like be able to nuke smart contracts at will. Some interesting things that unfold here, and I don't know what it's all going to mean and whether sort of like decentralizing all the things can even be the answer if this is potentially sort of a response put forth by the regulatory apparatus. But Jen, what do you think? I say so many times on this show, like I wish that the regulators would just do something, give us some kind of framework or guideline to work in. And the EU is doing that, but maybe they're doing it in a way that is not favorable to the industry moving forward. And so I kind of bite my tongue and it's like, I'm stuck in this middle ground. Like, I don't know what I want the regulators to do because this whole smart contract thing really kind of thwarts all of the innovation and progress that has been going on. Zach, I agree with you on the G7 story. It is interesting, though, that the G7 meeting will be held in Japan, which has really, really tight crypto regulations. And the G20 meeting that happened in September, which also had a focus on this kind of global crypto regulatory regime was held in India, who's also super, super strict on crypto regulation. And so I think that when we say we really need everyone to be on the same page when it comes to crypto, and then we try and get all these countries who notoriously haven't been able to work within their own governments, let alone work with each other. I think we're just introducing more problems into the pot and we may not be able to get to that regulation that we're working towards. You know, I think it all comes down to, again, having that throat to choke, right? And I think these decentralized systems are quite scary because there's no throat to choke. And then people get hurt. They go to the government and they say, government, fix my problems. My money is gone. And they say, well, we can't. It's a smart contract. You just got rugged. Whatever. We can't help you. And that's scary to a lot of governments worldwide, right? So Japan is a good example where they're regulating that throat to choke, those centralized intermediaries quite well. But again, the decentralized stuff, the on-chain stuff, the money that is native to the internet that doesn't require me establishing a client relationship with a particular company, 
is scary and hard to deal with. So I think that's sort of the big picture that I'm seeing from both these actually. Will? One other interesting thing about this is the laws proposed actually has a lot to do with smart appliances. So like your internet and your fridge talking to each other and those things being able to be turned off or unplugged remotely and how that's all going to work. Not necessarily as much as to do with smart contracts in the sense for blockchains here. That's more or less what the draft regulation does say. The crypto community here, though, is worried that there's going to be like a broad reading of this or an over-reading of this. And it's going to turn into problems for smart contracts, which, like you said, Jen and Zach, hard to turn that off. Very hard to turn off Tornado Cash. In fact, when Tornado Cash was sanctioned by OFAC in August, it's still online. You can still use it. It's just if you do use it, there's going to be some problems with your bank account and you might end up in jail for a little bit. But for these smart contracts, as it is right now, can't turn them off on a blockchain. Maybe future ones under reading of this bill, you'd have to have some sort of backdoor built in. That being the issue though, is if you do that with a smart contract, then it's not really a smart contract. A real good smart contract has the ability to launch on chain and exist in perpetuity without anyone touching it. That's what the decentralization ethos is with all these smart contracts. Yes, some do have multi-sigs where a few developers can sign in with some keys and make some changes to a smart contract. But really, if you want a golden smart contract, it needs to be completely decentralized. The keys need to be destroyed and can just exist on chain, taking commands when it's paid Ether or paid by another token and spitting out whatever output you want from it. I do think that we could see ourselves in a world where there is a reading poorly of this text and something that was intended for smart fridges is then put on two chains. And we have a really big problem for Ethereum and other smart contract systems out there. The uh, pretty funny thing for the government to do, but I really wouldn't push it past them. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. According to Bloomberg, Twitter's source code was actually published on GitHub a few months back. It was then pulled off of GitHub after a request from Twitter to pull all those files. But that is not stopping Elon Musk from trying to dig around and find out who published Twitter's internal information online. Of course, proprietary source code is the key function of any software business out there. So pushing that information online where anyone can copy and paste it and look through it for any possible bugs is a pretty big deal. That being said, it's a little funny looking at this whole story from 10,000 feet because of the actors involved, including the pseudonymous free speech enthusiast who published this information first on GitHub. Of course, that's a dig at Elon Musk who said that Twitter was going to be a free speech platform first and foremost. Has that really happened? It's up for anyone to talk about. But we're seeing here some back and forth with GitHub, Twitter, and the online community. Zach, I want to throw the story over to you. I think it's a great encapsulation of Twitter's problems to date. They're trying to be an online platform for everybody, yet you have some limitations when it comes to free speech and code. It was a nice troll move by that Anon. I have to give a tip of the cap for the username on that one because it is a nice little detail that was clearly highlighted in the reporting. So yeah, I mean, this is not good for Twitter. I mean, Twitter is having a hard go of it, right? You have all sorts of like backlash on multiple fronts, right? You have celebrities, you have William Shatner, one-time Captain Kirk, and upcoming 
consensus 2023 speaker, I should note, taking Elon to task for potentially being charged to keep the old blue check mark next to his name. So there's multiple fronts on which I think Twitter is sort of losing the public sentiment wars. And obviously, a big source code leak at this time does not help the public image that's generally seeing Twitter to sort of be in crisis. So in that big picture, this is all unfolding. And now there's a manhunt for free speech enthusiasts. And I guess we'll have to see if that person or people is brought to justice. Who knows, Jen? First, I didn't know William Shatner was going to be at consensus. So now Now I'm just like really excited. So now I need to express that. (laughs) Secondly, I have no inside information on this, but we all think this is an ex-Twitter employee, right? Like just not if you think that. It's a fair (laughs) assumption. The best part of the story, I thought, was an email sent to Twitter's official press address received an auto-generated poop emoji in response, reminding us that Twitter disbanded their press office. So no statement to the press on what's going on here. But I should note that you know Elon bought Twitter for $44 billion. I think he recently said it's now worth just under half of that, which again speaks to Twitter's slow demise since the takeover of Elon. And I mean, I think this is what happens when you handle an acquisition like this. You have a lot of disgruntled employees who have a lot of information and it doesn't bode well for your operations. Well, no, I actually kind of have a different take. Your numbers are right there. Their valuing Twitter about $20 billion was purchased for about $44 billion. They seem to be offering some new RSUs and stock agreements to current employees at Twitter. And yes, there was a lot of fireworks when Twitter went offline for a little bit and had some issues and there was a lot of people getting fired and layoffs. But what would you expect for like the most dramatic company in Silicon Valley? Like Twitter is where everyone goes to complain. So yes, when Twitter was having reorganization and all that stuff, it was going to be all online. It's going to be very public. So that wasn't super surprising to me. This also is sort of falling in line with a long history of any sort of code-based company that's public having its issues painted online in the middle of the town square. So I don't really see it being that damaging. The thing that could be damaging here, of course, is what's in the source code and who now has the source code, even though GitHub has pulled it offline. There could be potential bugs within that source code that someone could get a hold of, and then someone could exploit it. There's a lot of world leaders on Twitter. There's a lot of different information on Twitter. If someone is able to get into that source code and find a bug and exploit it, there could be some problems. And there's a history of this, right? Back in 2020, great story. The 17-year-old Florida boy going into Twitter, digging through some DMs and also publishing, asking for Bitcoin, a bunch of world leaders accounts. That could happen again in a world where this information is divulged more promptly. Zach, over to you. The world does not want to see Will Foxley's DMs, people. Like, just you do not <laughs> want that. You do not want that on the internet, folks. That's what it's all about. And I think we need to just state the obvious Leave it, here, leave right? it there. Well, this story feels very much like it's 2021 because we're talking about people, Board API Club and Gucci, just like a nice little metaverse story to end the day here. Gucci is going to be taking an active role in the upcoming Board Ape Yacht Club Metaverse offering. The luxury brand has signed a multi-year strategic partnership with Yuga Labs. They say they previously worked with Yuga Labs on its 10KTF project, the NFT browser game created by Beeple. Will, I know you love your luxury brands. What do you make of this partnership? Is it something you expected to see given everything else that's happening in this industry? Do I expect more grift in the crypto industry? Yes, I do. That's my short answer to it. I didn't like this story, but I mean, I don't like stories like this because I think they're just like low value. There's no add-on. There's a lot of buzzwords. 
We see two brands that they have a brand, but there's not a lot of substance behind them. People like Gucci. I'm not a big fan of it. But I don't know, just a lowly Denver boy. So maybe my opinion doesn't matter too much. I think we're going to see more of these. Yes, because everyone wants to be a digital entrepreneur. Even the legacy brands want to be in the digital space. As I said many times in this article, Gucci wants to venture off into the digital landscape with digital clothing and all that stuff. And I think people will buy it. So you know, if you can sell your wares in the marketplace, go ahead and sell your wares. I'm just not too interested in it. Zach, over to you. Was that Gucci Slurp Juice pictured? Is Slurp Juice is that a, is that a Lord Apes thing? Is that is that a thing? Is that is that what that is? I remember that word vaguely. Slurp Juice. I hope that's a real thing. No anyway, yeah. Anyway, whatever, guys. No, I just wanted to remember that Gucci announced in August that it was going to be accepting ApeCoin in its stores, right? So clearly, this is a bit of a continuation of a trend where Yuga and Gucci see themselves as partners in luxury, right? And if Gucci and Yuga are trying to make sort of a luxury-inspired metaverse, because luxury does do good business, brings big numbers, brings that appeal. I think that's actually a notable development, right? And it's going to see like, you know, Dolce Gabbana did a dress. All these other people did these things. And again, Jen, it is like flashback to the heady days of 2021 when digital wearables and digital fashion was, you know, thought to be a growing concern. I'd be curious to know if there is data to support that in any of the various metaverses that are supported here. But clearly, this is something that Gucci, I guess, or some people within Gucci feel strongly about and want to continue this investment. So at least that to me is a signal. Will, I hear you. There is a lot of noise around this with this particular grouping of words. But maybe this is just what conviction looks like if you're a, you know, a, a, a giga-rich luxury brand. I don't know. Jen? Okay. So we look at Gucci and we look at the people who like publicly hold board apes. They're celebrities. They're people that Gucci is already aligned with. And so I think that if Gucci does want to take a role in the digital space, maybe it is smart for them to align with a collection like the Board Ape Yacht Club, who have celebrities who already wear their physical items to represent these digital items as they try to introduce them to their audience. I'm going to leave it there because I know that Will has some sassy take to close us off. I do. But when you say that, it kind of takes all the air away from me. There's a strong <laughs> Venn diagram of Board Ape Yacht holders and then like the Gucci people because they both have bad taste and they're going to purchase these things. So <laughs> that makes sense to me. I want to make some predictions. I do think that there was some purchase somewhere here. I think Yuga probably paid Gucci somewhere and we'll see that. That's a prediction. Some like a year or two years from now, we will see some information disclosed about Yuga going out and purchasing these different brand partnerships. And I also think that there's going to be some regulatory action around this in the next two years because these things just smell a little weird. There's a token involved. There's big brands involved. I just don't like it. I think those are my two predictions for this. If that's okay Ooh. to do on the show, who knows? Zach, do Mark Will's word. Gucci getting hauled into court by Gary Gensler. Is that, is that what you're saying here? Is oh, that the prediction? I would love to see that. I mean, if I Ethereum's going down, then I could see uh, ApeCoin. So that's, that's my thoughts. I don't know. Oh, those are good thoughts. That's a high level take right there. That's a luxury take. That was a luxury take. <laughs> it's an expensive that's take. Good. That's good stuff right there. Um, I think that's it for the show today. We could leave it on that somewhat dire note where... Gucci is in the crosshairs for its ApeCoin collabo. Hmm, that's something to ponder. All right, that's it for the show today. That was The Hash on a Monday. I want you guys to check out something a little bit later on today, though. Check this out, the Women Who Web3 Lounge. We're going to be talking about crypto regulations and all that good stuff. We got folks from Bain Capital Crypto, Blockchain Association, and the Filecoin Foundation talking about this later on today, 5 p.m. Eastern, March 29th. That's not today. That's in two days. 
Is that Wednesday? Sorry, guys. I don't know dates. That's on Wednesday. All right. Check that out on Wednesday. Women Who Web 3. Check that out. Anyway, that's it for the hash. Check us out on the podcast. You can find us over there. Podcast Network. It rules. The hash is over there, as is some other amazing content. And that's it for the show today. We're going to wrap it up right there. It is a Monday. I'm Zach. That's Jen. There's Will. See everybody. Have a good one. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>